You're listening to Playback, a Variety iHeartRadio podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. This week I'm talking to Boots Riley, the writer and director of the film Sorry to Bother You. Boots got his start in the music world as part of the Oakland hip-hop group The Coup. We talk about his history in that industry and how it informed his transition to filmmaking, among other things. So sit tight. This is Playback. I'm here today with Boots Riley, the writer and director of Sorry to Bother You, also a hip-hop legend, I would say, from his days as the front man of the coup. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You bet. Yeah. You've been working a lot. I, this is funny to me right now because we're redoing what we just did. Yeah. Why'd you tell them? Because <laughs> it's funny. I like to bring it up. Yeah. Uh, we are just talking about your nickname. How did you get the nickname Boots? Wearing boots at the wrong time in the wrong place in high school. And... Uh, was a name that I wouldn't answer to for like three years. Like people would be like boots, boots, and I would actually ignore them until they said Ray or <laughs> Raymond or Ray Riley. I was first known as Ray Riley. Like people thought that was my first name, Ray mm-hmm. Riley. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, "What's your last name, Ray Riley?" I'd be like, <laughs> "You just said it." But yeah, once I started rapping, like it, it was a name that. People who didn't even know me because of the circumstances that came up and called me Boots, you know, like, oh, that's Boots. So when I started rapping, I was like, better use the name that everybody already knows me by. Right. Well, I love your music, man. And I actually want to start there, um, kind of work our way into the movie. But, you know, you Kill My Landlord, 1993 is your debut album. Uh I'm a big fan of early 90s music, all of it. You know, hip-hop, what was going on with R&B, rock. It's just an interesting clash of genres that was going on at that time. So I'd love to talk to somebody like you who entered that scene at that time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm just very curious what it was like for you. What was, what was the music world like for you to enter it in the early 90s, coming out of film school, mm-hmm. and kind of what was going on with music at that time? I have to think about things in a way I haven't thought about them. Uh, so I think that, uh, you know, at the time there there were less outlets for people to hear music from. Mm-hmm. So it was important to get into those outlets. Like, uh, so, you know, even like for for rappers, for hip hop, there weren't like venues, like whereas like maybe with indie rock, you could play these venues, gather up a crowd, then maybe tour. And do, but a lot of towns, and especially Oakland, but a lot of towns all over the country, um, what we now consider hip hop venues that do hip hop shows, they usually do a lot of different things. But they wouldn't have hip hop there because mm-hmm. um, the idea was hip hop shows would be too violent. That was what they thought, or whatever. Who knows? But they weren't having them. They just have rock shows there. So we didn't have, like, the ways to, like, go about it in that way. Like, we did have an independent hip-hop movement. But that was just us selling tapes out of our trunk, like, pulling up on a group of people, getting them to play our tape. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and hopefully they dance to it and like it. Or you give out your tape to the people that are popular with big systems. And we would go around the country. We'd go around the country. Our first promotional tour 
We didn't have any shows. We just got to each city, put up stickers and posters, asked where the, because the, there was no like network. You didn't know where the record stores were. Mm-hmm. You asked people where the record stores are. Because this is like right before SoundScan jumped mm-hmm. off. And even the SoundScan for a while was not the independent store. So we asked where the record store is, asked them if we could put up our own, um, put up our, our point of purchase stuff. Ask them what parties were going on that night. Go there. Go get the DJ to play a song. Give flyers to everybody. Hopefully we can get on the mic and say something, do something. And be in, in between that, get people to play the music in their cars. Mm-hmm. And so we did that. You know, we did that for weeks and weeks. And that was in 93. That was where. And then it was only. So we needed to get on BET. And we were not on their radar, and we went. This was when BT was in in DC still, and we went and we banged on the door, like literally banged on the door, and um, there was a dude, Joe. Man, I'm forgetting his name, but he was with the host of BT. We don't know who the producers were or anything, mm-hmm. and we were on Wild Pitch, and they kind of knew some of the stuff, and so we we went and we asked for him, and we we're like, yeah. He told us to come here, and um, <laughs> and uh, he came out and he was like, "What? What is this all about?" And we're like, we're, we're, "We want to take you to lunch." So we went to. We spent our per diem. We put our per diems together. Me, Pam, uh, E Rock, and our uh, road manager at the time, Chuck the Pharaoh, put our per diems together, which was like six dollar a day per diem or something. And we bought this dude lunch. <laughs> And um, made friends with him, and he played our video. That's um, awesome. A lot of that DIY stuff, I mean, that, that probably translates to the film world, right? I mean, you, you, Oh, yeah. I mean, it's how I got it funded. Yeah. How I got people behind it. With, with the music, was there anything at the time that, was there a hole you felt needed to be filled? Was there a certain, uh, was there something that wasn't happening in music that you wanted to put there? Oh, definitely. I, um... You know, I, I came from an organizing background. I started, um, I have a lot of contradictions. I, different times I was, I was doing theater and I was an organizer, um, with, uh, that, that was helping out, um, the, the creation of a, of a anti-racist farm workers union in Watsonville and, uh, not in Watsonville, in Delano and McFarland, mm-hmm. um, I also was, uh, I also, right after that, during the same time, at the same time, was promoted parties, you know, like the parties like, ladies in free before 10, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, dress code, no gym shoes, you know, (laughs) whatever. Um, All of these things kind of converged. And... I in then I and I was going to film school at different times, you know, at, while all of these things were overlapping. Yeah. And I um I I saw that you know, I, everything that I do is about how I look at the world and I I thought I didn't think anyone was out there putting out the analysis that I was putting out that yeah. I wanted to put out. So Started doing that, and when I decided to do it, I didn't know what I was doing. And I, similar to, to film, I was like, "Well, this has to be done. What do I need to learn 
to do this. Mm-hmm. And I knew I wasn't good at rapping. You know, um, radical, you know, radical organizations, they operate off of a philosophy of dialectical materialism. Right, right. Which is one of the ideas behind it, is that everything changes. Mm-hmm. Nothing stays the same. Um, that even, I mean, and this is true, obviously, even the rocks are deteriorating mm-hmm. and changing all the time. So w- with that, that everything is changing, you also can have something to say uh, or to do with how things change. Mm-hmm. So thinking about that ends up, especially for a kid trying to figure out who they are and what they want to do, that ends up being liberating in the sense that you also, because of that, can figure out if you want to get to point B or C or whatever, that no matter how impossible it is, it's really just about having a clear analysis of what the obstacles are, figuring out what those steps are that you would have to take. Mm -hmm. You know, like if I wanted to go to the moon in three months you know one of my obstacles would be money so i'd have to get some billionaire to want to send me to the moon you know whatever yeah i could define the maybe it's almost impossible maybe i wouldn't be able to attain the steps in between but the first step is to correctly define what those steps are going to be and so i did that with music i practiced i looked at what other rappers were doing yeah. Sometimes it was, you know, almost imitating them and figuring that out, figuring out what they did with their, you know, delivery, figuring out, um, you know, figuring out how and then practiced. You know, I knew that practice was a big part of it. Yeah. And I knew that there's different ways just from organizing. I know there's different ways to practice like if I'm talking to you, it's different than me, like, sitting down writing something mm-hmm. or whatever. Or if I'm talking to ten people. All those things I applied to doing the music. And I made myself get better. Yeah. And um, and, and and enough to do this thing. It wasn't like I wasn't the guy who people were like, oh, you're good. You should do this. What are you doing not doing that? You know? <laughs> right, right. People were, like, surprised when I was doing it. Mm-hmm. Similar to how they were with the film. Yeah, and I'm sorry to throw. You probably came in here expecting to start talking about the movie immediately, yeah, but I just yeah. wanted to get into your music no, stuff no, a little bit because it's, it's, it's interesting to me how it might uh, inform. Because also, you know, I read that you you wrote a, you taught a course on uh, in high school or, or a high school course on persuasive lyric writing. Right? Yeah. is that true? Yeah. So I'm curious about that because I actually want to know the answer. Like, what what, what is persuasive writing? What, what what is an example of persuasive writing? Uh, what's the well, secret like, to, to? I mean, it, it more is about having a reason you're talking to someone. Mm-hmm. Like, especially if you're making a piece of art, it's more looking at it from the standpoint of what do you want to say about the world, mm-hmm. as opposed to that you want to just get to the end of the verse and say some cute things, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, that applies to film, obviously. You're dealing in theme with, with, with screenwriting. You, yeah. you want to be saying something. Obviously, your movie is saying something. It's saying a lot of things. And it's yeah. having a lot of fun as well along the way. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got 
this thing that you say every time someone asks you to kind of distill it. And I'm just going to say it for you this okay. time and not let you say it. Yeah. This film is an absurdist dark comedy with magical realism and science fiction inspired by the world of telemarketing, which completely undersells or omits any of the sociopolitical underpinnings of the film. So why is that? Just to not scare someone away with the first? No, I, well, here's the thing is that I think all of these films are political, even like skyscraper and rampage i haven't seen those movies so i don't know in which way they are but they're all telling us something even when the writer might not be conscious of what Mm -hmm. they're telling but sometimes the writer is conscious because as we know there is and this is for some people who haven't heard this might seem like i'm a tinfoil hat guy but ever after 9-11 there was an open dialogue between the pentagon and different studios and not just for films about you know the invasion of 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 Iraq like there's a dialogue that's going on and some of that has to do with how are the how is the army being portrayed how is the you know like are there some things where you can put in some navy seals mm-hmm. all those sorts of things mm-hmm. um and I, and and that's just the more crass stuff but other stuff is you know um just the way life is you know like what what things you're supposed to be be scared of what things you know what you know putting out the idea of what most humans want and how most humans act it's all political mm-hmm. so if we talk about my film in terms of it being quote unquote political then what it's doing is it's making us think that the rest of the stuff is normal mm. you know it's making us think that the rest of the stuff has no viewpoint Regarding the tinfoil hat comment, I mean, do you, do you deal with that? Do, do, do you – I mean, I was – I asked that because I was watching uh, your Politically Incorrect episode from 15 mm-hmm. years, right after 9-11, you know, when party music came out. And uh, I just wanted to jump through the screen and smack Bill Maher around because he was, <laughs> he was so condescending to you and the other guests on the show as well. Do you deal with that? Um, well, I would say this. I mean – I do sometimes, but then I'm always, I'm not always, but I'm shown to be right. Like on that one, I was putting forward the idea that the U.S. got into (laughs) invading uh, Iraq for monetary reasons. And they were like, oh, you're crazy, this and that, what what are you talking about? Then, of course, it got found out, Mm -hmm. you know. I'm not saying I was the only one saying that, but there wasn't anyone on television. It was too radical an idea for people to even discuss on yeah. Disney-owned television, I guess. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, you're right. Um, so I don't think that normal folks take it as, you know, something way out there. I mean, look, there, was, um, a, there were two studies r- recently done, one by Harvard, but to me the more— Telling one was the one I, I can call it up on my phone because I've screenshotted it to show to people. But um, uh, the but where there's a, a, a right wing think tank that did a study of 4,200 millennials, mm-hmm. and one of the things they came up with made made this think tank up in arms, saying, "Look, this is showing us that you know universities are doing this and that." Anyway. It, out of those 4,200 millennials showed one in two uh, believed that we should have a socialist world. Mm. Um, so often, though, writers 
and artists have done everything that we can do to try to get out of the real world, you know, like to to um, separate ourselves from folks. So we've we've made ourselves believe that there's nothing that can be done about the world. And that and so we sink into writing and we're like, we're going to expose it, which my show, which my uh, movie kind of talks about like mm-hmm. we we are like look what we do is we tell the truth and that's our job that's all we can do man so we just tell the truth and you know it gets out there but that's not enough and in giving us ourselves that excuse we cling on to the idea that we should change what we write about um, to be, because everyone else is not as enlightened as us, mm-hmm. so you know people water down their own ideas mm-hmm. publicly because we, you know, that's what the media is f- often does is it makes us think that we're the most radical person in the room. Mm-hmm. That's the whole job. I mean, I have so many examples of that in life where. I mean, I mean, Occupy coming up is one of them. Nobody would have thought in 2010 that in 2011 you'd have this movement jumping off in every town in the United States where they basically were having a class line that said the 99% versus the 1%, which now is a cliche sort of thing to throw out there to mm-hmm. where we don't even think about it. and it just But in reality talking about an economic function to <laughs> this economic system, which seems it's radical to say that there are functions inside of an economic system. Mm-hmm. But we wouldn't have thought that. But all these things popped up in all of these towns. And, and beyond the people that showed up there, the folks that liked the fact that it was there, that weren't showing up there. I mean, the point is, is that um, before that, they hadn't even said the word capitalism. And mm-hmm. there was some study was done where before uh, before Occupy, the news had said the word capitalism once in 20 years. Mm-hmm. And then after Occupy, <laughs> they were saying it, you know, yeah. every night. Like it was a dirty word to those who were. Yeah, like Which, it was like no. to look at it in a. To look at things as having anything to do with economic function mm-hmm. um, then calls up other questions. Yeah. You know. But but here's the thing. The other reason that I don't talk about it necessarily in terms of it, a social political thing, because, I mean, if you get any director here and you talk to them about their ideas, they're going to have as many ideas as I do. Mm-hmm. But... For the past 20-something years, uh, rebellion has been edited out of what we write about. I just Regarding that comment, I just read something you said about another film, uh, Never Let Me Go. Yeah. I had the exact same takeaway from that movie that you did, yeah. and uh, you know, which is that there's no spirit of rebellion 
within the film. And in some ways, okay, that's kind of the point, but that's but it's it not could, what I wanted. Yeah. And you, you know? could have that be the point for the characters mm-hmm. that are there. Let's say he wanted to write about some emotional thing of like giving up and losing hope. Okay. But it could still be somewhere in the world, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere ha- because they have other things happening in yeah. that world that, you know, and and but it get yeah, we don't even have it in that world. The only time we have it in that world is when they create such a science fiction um, uh, such a science fiction created different universe. It's allegory. Yeah, that, and yeah. and that it doesn't even matter. Like yeah. Star Wars was supposed to be, started out as George Lucas's version of Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. He was supposed to write Apocalypse. It was his idea to do Apocalypse Now, but he. Um, this is according to the Conversations, which is a book uh, that's a, of conversations between Michael Landacci and Walter Murch who edited a lot of that mm-hmm. stuff. He was going, he he was making his movie based on the Heart of Darkness, as Apocalypse Now was, um, but following the Viet Cong with the Viet Cong as the protagonist mm-hmm. and going into um, U.S. territory to find. This Viet Cong, ex-Viet Cong guy who had risen up the ranks and become powerful there and were helping them to fight the Viet Cong. And people were like, that's too radical. You're having them identify with, you know, the communists. Mm-hmm. And George, and he's like, and he couldn't get it funded. So he's like, fine, I'll put it in space. And that's where Star Wars comes. The rebels were, mm-hmm. for at least for the first movie, the rebels were supposed to be the Viet Cong. The Empire was the United States, and um, and Darth Vader was their Kurtz. And it doesn't matter. <laughs> no, I know what you're Nobody saying. Nobody cares. Yeah, you know what I'm it's, saying. It's so removed from real life that you, you can only couch those ideas in something that's fantasy or something. And yeah. that, that you're saying that that. And because of that, how removed it is, that's why we have no idea why anybody is in the Empire to begin with. (laughs) Like, nobody is like, yeah, it really fights for our families. No, (laughs) Nobody's doing that. It's so removed that there's no allusion to the United States. Yeah. Or, and and in a lot of these movies, that's why they have evil versus good in that way. Mm -hmm. Because they don't want to, they don't want to uh, make reference to anyone in our real world so I mean in Star Trek they're supposed to live in a socialist society nobody cares it doesn't matter it's so far you know mm-hmm. like Republicans can watch those things and be totally down mm-hmm. because it doesn't really raise the thing and, yeah. and, and I'm not saying that I think that there definitely are even a lot of Republicans that would agree with the basic idea that People should get the value of the work that they do. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Which is a very socialist concept. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, when you start putting lingo on it, then yeah, yeah, people are like, "Oh, I, I don't think I agree with that. <laughs> right. I'm not supposed to." You know? Yeah, yeah. Then, as an art artist, when we start talking about the film in that way, my ego gets hurt because mm-hmm. I put a lot of work into the style of this, yeah, and to the, into the storytelling that, um just because I end up having a different viewpoint than that people aren't used to seeing in, in film, then that's what gets talked about. But um, I would say that 
there's a lot of stuff that we all, you know, this was a collaboration of actors and production designer, DP and um, costume designer and like with this vision that I had that I think um, is something that could get looked over. So that's why I talk about what it's what to me that's what it's about. Right. Just just and this is we're talking about that one question for a long time. <laughs> but that's what it's about is those those things that I said it is an absurdist dark comedy, magical realism, science fiction cuz all those other things that don't have my viewpoint, they have some other viewpoint that we yeah. don't talk about either. Right, right. Well, let's talk about just the – it has a very interesting journey, obviously, this story. I mean uh, the script was published uh, through the help of Dave Eggers yeah. uh, originally. So, uh, 2014. 2014. Uh, you finally got the funding to make it as a film. Um, so you know, just a very unique kind of trajectory for a story like this. You went to the Sundance uh, Labs with it as well. What, what did you learn with, with the Sundance Institute of it all? I mean, you, um, and, and, I, and yeah. I mentioned earlier you went to film school, by the way. So, like, so everyone's under, uh, aware you went to film school before you became a music star. Yeah, I, I went to film school, and that was at San Francisco State. And at the time, there was a lot of focus on experimental film mm-hmm. and uh, documentary, um, both of which ones were, weren't things I was interested in. Um, and. Uh, Going to school in San Francisco might have been different than going to film school in L.A. or New York, where I think, like, if you go to school in L.A. or New York, you know people who got out of school and made a film or even, you know, made a narrative film yeah. at the, you know, for their thesis, you know. I went to film school in North Carolina, so I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. So it was, like, seemed still like a pipe dream, yeah. even though I was in film school and. So that's why I took the record deal, um, and on the and then to be honest, you know that was a long time ago. I don't remember any of that shit. Yeah, you right. know, like I'm sure I learned some of that stuff and put and brought it forward, but I can't parse out where I got this versus where I got that because mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I also was in, in, you know, we made a lot of videos of which I only co-directed one of them, mm-hmm. but. Um, you know, I was a part of that whole process, and you know, I wasn't a stranger to a set. Um, but I, I think a lot of really more than way more than film school. What helped me out is producing music, which is a similar collaborative process where you've got people that are masters of their craft. And in the music sense, uh, if I'm the producer, they've each got more experience. Well, maybe not experience, but they've each got more uh, knowledge of music than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's my vision that I have that 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 we I, and I have to get them to buy into it. I have yeah. to get them to like it. I got, have to get them to, uh, and I have to know what I want out of each one of them that that they can bring. And then I have to know that you know the guitar player is going to want a guitar solo, and that might not help out. The final product, I have to know that the, when the bass player has a better bass line than I do. So all of those things and just working and getting projects done and having the experience of dealing with people fighting with each other. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have made this movie even with, you know, the same idea. If I had the same idea, I wouldn't have made this same movie coming straight out of film school because I yeah. might have been so worried about 
just being able to make a film mm -hmm. that I would have been like, okay, we can take out all that stuff, and it's really just about Cassius and Detroit meeting each other at a telemarketing place. You know what I'm saying? Like, right, right. Uh, I might have been more malleable, yeah. but since I had been doing art for a long time and had been doing art that was contentious even just not even for the politics but for the the style with which I did it I was used to people being like that's weird why are you doing that yeah and having my own reasons and being okay with that being set in what you your yeah your but but is. also yeah. this you know that's also part of the dialectical materialism idea is that you know taking critique in and mm -hmm. and being okay with it and, and you know and, and listening to it and you know, you do go through a process of not listening to it, and then after a while you hear it. But, you know, so all of that. But then going to the Sundance Labs, it still was like a world that I didn't know, right? I didn't know other filmmakers. I had just started kind of meeting other filmmakers because I joined um, the SF Film uh, Filmmaker in Residence program. And so there were people like actually being like we're putting this together or we made a film and mm -hmm. we you know so it was the, but but going there and first to the screenwriters lab then later to the directors lab um with the screenwriters lab you have all of these people that are masters of their craft looking at it and and first you know it's just validating like um the ones that liked it but i mean it was a it was a controversial one, I will say, you know, um, because it was different. Yeah. And, um, just even the format or whatever. And then some people were like, I like it, but, you know, we need to make this more like a movie you, you can sell or whatever. Yeah. You know, just trying to help me out or sure, whatever. Sure, sure. You know. Um, this conversation is keeping the movie nicely vague, too. I hope people are like, what is this? I see it. <laughs> And and and, uh, but then you do you see them debating your script, and you realize nobody knows what the fuck they're doing, <laughs> and they're all trying to use what they know to tell a good story, mm -hmm. and that's all it is, and um, so that helped me out tremendously, um, as well as like just comments by different people. Um, uh, you know, even both the negative, I won't say negative, both the comments that were like critical and wanting me to change certain things um, and the ones that upheld it. Like, um, but, but the best thing I got in the screenwriters lab was this guy, Kareem Inus, who was like, look, I don't, I don't know how to tell you anything about your script. That's dumb. It's your script. My script is my script, whatever. Um, I just come here because they give me, you know, it's a resort and, you know, <laughs> it's free food and it's fun. Yeah. Um, and he said, but what I will tell you is I love Cassius. I love your lead character. I, I want to, I want to have drinks with him. I want to hug him and take care of him. I want to hang out with him. I just want to be around him all the time. Um, and he said, and that's how I know it's bullshit because I hate everybody. <laughs> and, and so we had a three hour long conversation about people in our lives, uh, who've 
you know, in their decision at different points that we disagree with and what was happening with that. And, you know, and what I realized from that was that I was making Cassius just be this, like, innocent pinball getting slapped around. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was the same things that happened in the movie, but but he was just... It just happened to be that he had to make this decision and had to make that decision and all that kind of stuff. And I ended up giving him more agency because right. of that, where he actually made these decisions. Because this was that, 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 it, the conversation brought out that this is more real, what really happens in real life. Mm-hmm. That, you know, people make their decisions and then they even sometimes dig themselves further into it because they don't want to have made the wrong decision mm-hmm. and they own it. And so he became that character and that. That had reverberations throughout the script yeah, to the other characters as well. So, um, what about names? I wanted to talk to you about names. You mentioned Cassius in Detroit. There's also Diana. It's not debauchery. Debauchery. But yeah. what, what is debauchery? Debauchery. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Salvador and Langston. Just interesting names. Do you think much about how you're naming a character? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm into. You know, if you even see my song titles and album titles, yeah. I'm very... I mean, this album that's the soundtrack to the movie is actually probably the least creative title that I've ever had, which is the soundtrack to Sorry to Bother You. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, naming is a is a big part of it. Naming is like dialogue or lyrics or, you know, yeah. anything like that. Yeah. I mean, basically, you give me... Any space where I get to create something, I'm going to want to make the most of it. Yeah. Why do you think you were so good at telemarketing? Um, well, which partly inspired this this film. Yeah. Well, I was always that kid that um that a newspaper had a 17 year old go and scoop up all the kids in the neighborhood into a van which seems like how did they let us do this <laughs> and uh, takes you to some other neighborhood where you get out and you and you go door to door, you knock on the door and sell newspaper subscriptions and at the end of the day you get a slice of pizza. And, uh, and if you way. happen to sell some newspapers, you get something, I don't know, like a dollar or something, I don't know. <laughs> um, and I was that kid that would knock on your door with tears in his eyes and you know because it definitely was already the time when I was about to get picked up and I wasn't going to sell this one newspaper that was going to give me my trip to Disneyland you know Mm -hmm. that sort of thing through that for the wrong reasons I learned how to listen to people learned how um, sometimes people say something very different than what they actually mean, which happens a lot in this movie. But, um, and that carried over into, for good reasons, into my skills at organizing and realizing that it's not about the lingo that people use or whatever. You know, I'm not someone that gets caught up on people using the, you know, politically correct language. It's more about what they're about. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that language tells you something about what they're about but it's more about what people are about and I used that in my organizing because I was seeing 
that some folks were being really didactic and not hearing other folks mm -hmm. that were actually agreeing with them. Then that even more carried through into my writings of songs. Mm -hmm. Like talking about the things that people really are thinking about mm -hmm. and caring about. Like, the, you know, our stuff, no matter how political it was, it wasn't, say, Rage Against the Machine, which those lyrics are about, like, anger mm -hmm. and being mad at the system or whatever. Our lyrics were often funny and danceable. <laughs> I mean, the songs and... And and had to do with in this. some ways too. There was surrealism. I don't there. know. There might have been. We have a song called "Ass Breath Killers," <laughs> which are about these. Uh, it's a commercial. The song is a commercial for uh, uh, these pills that you take that stop you from kissing the boss's ass. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So, but but yeah. Basically, plugging into what I had learned from organizing, which is. That it's not people being mad at the way things are that helps because most people don't like the way things are. Some people do, but most don't. The thing that's stopping people from doing things is them feeling like there's a way to change it. Right. So our music was always very optimistic, and that had to do with me listening to people and and not just listening for the words that they say. You know, mm -hmm. like there are some people that would at that time be like. Oh, hip hop is so materialistic. They're always talking about, you know, the money that they have, and they don't even have the money. I'm like, exactly. They're not talking about the money they have. They're talking about the freedom they want. Mm -hmm. And that, and and, but we, I haven't presented a movement for folks to get there. Yeah. And uh, so. My music was much different than other music that would have been labeled mm -hmm. conscious or something like that because it wasn't preaching that you're doing the wrong thing. Stop thinking about that. Think about this. Yeah. You know, it yeah, was yeah. like talking about here's what you're already thinking about. I, I think it's connected to this. Let's go do this. Right. You know, and so that also so. Then when I was, you know, I quit doing telemarketing. And, you know, I did telemarketing in in college, and then I did it again after our second album because I had, had a, an age twenty four midlife crisis where I felt like I was like being fake, and you know, mm -hmm. I've been I was doing music for my adult life, and I had not I I didn't have respect for artists or myself as an artist as meaning I didn't think that it really did anything. Mm -hmm. I was wrong, but uh, there's part of it that is right. And um, so I stopped and we made an organization called the Young Comrades. And during that time, I needed a way to make money. And I knew I was good at telemarketing. So I did that in order to be because I could do telemarketing one day every two weeks and make all the money I needed to to be you were organizing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the reason that I was that good is because um, of listening and thinking about what people wanted, what people, and it, you know, so for manipulative reasons and, and uh, you know, not sticking to the script, you know, um, 
it, you know, it was that at that time I was doing tele fundraising, so ostensibly it wasn't as bad as you know selling people encyclopedias yeah. they don't need or whatever, and and newspapers, which I had done before. Um, but so, but yeah, I had ways of manipulating people. What's next? I know you got like uh, you got a TV deal and and probably people ready to read TV deal and a TV deal and a feature deal and both of them are for whatever I want to do. Well, that's great. Yeah, can't ask for much more than that. <laughs> do you, f- you feel like film is something that uh, I mean, as as you say, you were born into this. You were born into activism and 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 uh, uh, organi- organizing. Uh, is film something you feel like? can really be a, a proper tool for that? Um, I think it's up to the organizations. Yeah. I think it can be, yes. The answer is yes. But if there aren't movements happening, then it just becomes ideas, and people talk about them, they become cute and mm-hmm. cool, and you know, people will get the T-shirts and the earrings, and then, you know, which I think are, is good, because the T-shirts and the earrings make people talk about the movie. Um, and... They also show that people are like connecting with it. Mm-hmm. However, there needs to be movement. There need to be movements that folks can join where at the place that they're at. You know. Yeah. And uh, we'll see whether the, whether they're out there. I think they are out there. We're seeing all kinds of stuff happening right now. We're seeing. Um, West Virginia, or is it just Virginia, the teachers strike where they're mm-hmm. shutting, shut down the whole thing. We're seeing stuff like that going on all over the place. People are looking for way, for footholds mm-hmm. for people to have power with. And, uh, you know, hopefully this film doesn't just become a talking piece or whatever. Right. And, you know, some of our music, I feel like, was that, but it also can inspire people to do things. One thing I hope it inspires is other writers to stop editing a real part of the world out of their worlds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The movie's called Sorry to Bother You. It opens July 6th. Uh, everyone should go see it. Hopefully this conversation stimulated you because we didn't really get into the nitty-gritty, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to, like, you know. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a movie you Go could in spoil. without knowing anything. Just listen to everybody telling you that it's good and then go. <laughs> Because that's how I that's how I went to see um, that's how I went to see uh, Black Swan. Oh yeah. You know I didn't know anything about it. I saw the poster, and I was going on a date with this girl, and I was like, "Oh, we're gonna go see a ballet movie. <laughs> I'm gonna have to get high." So <laughs> I you? got really high. Oh yeah. Because I, I was like, "I'm not. This is." I kept smoking in the parking lot, and I was like, "I'm not high enough to go see a ballet movie." And I'm a lightweight. And then you so, got too but high I wasn't to see getting, Black Swan. Because probably. I'm a lightweight and didn't know that I should wait, I just kept smoking. And I sat down in the seat and I was like, oh, shit, I'm high. <laughs> and then the movie came on. And throughout it, I was like loudly saying, oh, shit. Oh, my God. This is the best movie I've ever seen. <laughs> And uh, I want people to do that, but without smoking the weed, you know. It's a, no matter how illegal it is, it's still, if you smoke anything, it's bad for you. That doesn't, I'm not, you know, That's whatever. True. I just want to say that in my time right here is because, you know, we get all hyped off of stuff and like, oh, it's it's healthy. No, do it. 
but just know it's unhealthy. When I yeah. when I drink whiskey, I'm not like, oh, this is healthy, you know. Right. right. But <laughs> but <laughs> words of wisdom from Boots Riley. <laughs> well, go check out the movie, everybody. July 6th. Sorry to bother you. Really appreciate you coming on the show. All right, man. Thank, you, so Thank you for having me. July 6th in select theaters. July 13th everywhere. There you go. Thanks, man.